And uh, the afternoon session, uh, Professor will be talking about um, credit unions and the role that they might will play in the future. So over to Professor. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, the reference to uh, Benjamin Anderson's book is at the end of lecture three. It's page ten. The title of his book, Economics and the Public Welfare, a Financial History of the United States from 1914 to 1946. And that's where the quotation on the tyranny of gold is taken. And it's a book I very heartily recommend to all of you. It's still in print, can be uh, uh, ordered. And uh, a book which is well to preserve and have on hand. There are a lot of prophetic things in it. I consider Benjamin Anderson as one of the great American monetary scientists, died in 1948, uh, I think. Uh, this uh, book was published posthumously. He died and next the manuscript was ready and uh, they published it after his death. Now, the <laughs> title of my third lecture credit unions needs to be explained. Uh, what it means is a propaganda line against banks. If you ever recover from the great crisis we are running headlong into, and you have to have banks after that, Please don't call them banks, because the name a bank has been so thoroughly discredited that it will not be able to do business if you call them a bank. So you just have to find a new word for it. And I looked around and I thought, well, maybe credit union is an acceptable alternative. But that's all it is. It's just an, another name because the name bank has been so badly discredited and you might as well realize at this point that all the banks in the world today are insolvent, they are bankrupt, they are just maintained, just like the Japanese banks, they are completely insolvent and bankrupt, they, are, they can keep open the doors by the grace of the government uh, forcing people to use their instruments, they are just finished. It's just not right. The world is zombies, walking corpses. That's what they are. Now, that's Japan because deflation started first in Japan in the 1990s. But the banks in the United States are only a few steps behind. 
And the same is true for banks anywhere. And uh, I find it interesting to contemplate that there was a time not very long ago, say in the 1980s, when if you took the first 10 top banks in the world, I think eight or nine of them were Japanese. They have been extremely strong financially and they have overtaken the banks, uh, the greatest banks in the United States. But their glory didn't last long because the Japanese government, which you might recall, was just as well off as the Chinese are today as far as their foreign exchange reserves uh, were concerned. Japan had the greatest amount of the largest foreign exchange uh, reserve which was basically American Treasury paper and uh, then they fell on hard times and they wanted to use their reserves. Reserves are just for, for that purpose. If you fall on hard times, then you just have to reach for your reserves and this will tie you over the difficulties. But the Japanese found out that they are not able to use these treasury bonds and bills and what have you in their foreign exchange reserves because if they tried to sell them it would have made the market collapse. So they found themselves trapped. And then of course the American uh, money doctors came to the rescue and they explained to the Japanese, look, your credit is very good you know. <laughs> and you can issue your own debt. So why don't you borrow and follow our examples? Because we are doing so well simply because we are using our credit. That's what credit is for. Use it. And forget about your reserves, you see. So in other words, the Japanese were pushed into a situation that they had to start borrowing. And of course this is contagious, this is like addiction, drug addiction. Once they started it, they just had to continue. And by now they are worse off uh, than any other country, I think, as far as the Japanese governments that is concerned, it would take two years of GDP to repay that debt. Now that's worse than the United States, which would take one year and a quarter or something like that to repay. Uh, so, uh, this is amazing that a country can be ruined in such a short space of time. And also the other thing is, which the American money doctors did to Japan, is that they 
forced the Japanese government to continuously revalue the uh, Japanese yen upwards. That means, uh, I recall uh, the time when I think one dollar uh, fetched 320 Japanese yens. That was in the 1970s. I remember very well. And then the Americans said, well, that's not a fair exchange rate. You are taking advantage of, uh, of us and the rest of the world because you flooded the world with your cheap products and uh, didn't allow us to compete with our products on the Japanese market. You just have to uh, jack up the value of the yen. And being an occupied country under military occupation, what can the poor Japanese do? Uh, they do as they, they did as they were told, and they revalued and revalued and revalued the Japanese yen until one dollar was the equivalent something like 80 yens. So that's four times. Fantastic, you know? Now, this is poison, I tell you why. Because the Japanese carry their books, the companies, municipal governments, and so on, in Japan. Not in dollars, but in yens. So if they had any American paper or any American assets denominated in dollars, Every time when they jacked up the value of the yen, they were taking an immediate loss on their assets. Simply because they carry their books in yen, not in dollars. You see. So they bankrupted themselves by revaluing the currency up and up and up. And at the same time, the prediction of Friedman and the others were, was that Oh, the uh, trade deficit, the American trade deficit will be solved and the world trade will be, the balance of world trade will be restored because that was the theory that as you revalue a currency upwards, then you reduce the exports and increase the imports so that there will be a balance. But it never happened. In fact, the trade imbalance between the U.S. and Japan got ten times worse while the Japanese yen was revalued four times higher. It's a completely foolish theory and nobody ever sat down and said, you know, we have to get to the bottom of that. I mean, how come that we all uh, pay lip service to Friedman's theory of floating exchange rates, and uh, it never works. It didn't work in the case of uh, Japanese and American trade. It didn't work in the case of German and American trade, and many other instances. It never worked. It never ever works. And it's also easy to see why not. Because uh, change, for instance, 
the dollar in effect was devalued against the Japanese yen. Now a devaluation is very much like footing yourself, shooting yourself in the foot or uh, you, uh, what's the word when a soldier uh, Amputate. Disarm. Hmm? Amputate. No, Disarm. a soldier uh, Disarm. 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 Yeah, that's right. So, in other words, the American producers were hurting themselves and making them less competitive. Their terms of trade was made worse by the evaluation. So they were less able to compete with their uh, competitors than before the evaluation. So no wonder that the trade deficit didn't disappear but got worse. And while everybody, all the economists were crying that let's do more of it, let's devalue more, nobody said that perhaps stable exchange rates would solve the problem if floating exchange rates did not. So that's what's missing. But nobody, nobody suggested that. So the situation got worse and worse and worse. And right now, that's what the Brazilian central bank uh, president said, or, or finance minister said, that there is a trade war going on now, whether you recognize it or not. And we have a situation where we have a competitive devaluation of all the currencies downwards. It's not floating, it's sinking downwards. And the ultimate end will be wiping out the value of all the so-called floating currencies. And I, I must agree, that's exactly where we are. So, this was just an introduction to explain why the banks are doing, doing so badly and they are, the writing is on the wall. They'll be wiped out and swept away go into the uh, garbage heap of history together with the currencies. And for a meaningful revival and reconstruction, we should forget about the word bank. So whatever else will do the job of the banks, we want to give another name, and I didn't find a better one than credit unions. Now here is a quotation from Daniel Webster, the uh, American, uh, uh, how shall I call him? Uh, he also wrote a dictionary, but there are other things he did. And anyhow, he was a, uh, obviously a, a great man, and that's what he said. Of all the contrivances for cheating the laboring classes of mankind, none has been more effective 
than that which deludes them, deludes them with paper money. So I think this sum, sums up the situation perfectly. And it's the laboring class which gets hurt most. Of course, big, big uh, uh, chunks of wealth are destroyed, owned by very wealthy people. But they will survive, they can take care of themselves, they are diversified enough that they will never have to starve, but the laboring classes are in a much worse shape. Now, I talk about the invisible vacuum cleaner. And this is a mental uh, experiment or uh, call it a fable, which I invented, but, uh, but uh, I thought it was useful and perhaps you will enjoy listening to that. What is the invisible vacuum cleaner? Suppose for the sake of argument, this is a legend now, it's, uh, that General Motors of the United States has come into the possession of a fantastic invention, an invisible vacuum cleaner, which is capable, just when you go through an airport security, there is this little frame and you walk through and it shows if you have a hidden gun. Now, the same way, the workers of General Motors at the end of the working day will have to go through such a detector. And they are told that this is a detector, that they are not stealing any uh, uh, tools or value from the factory. But in fact, it's not a detector, it's an invisible vacuum cleaner, which, in, which changes the value of their paychecks. They got their paychecks, pay envelope, and every, for every dollar of increase which their unions got in wage negotiations, becomes one dollar. So their salary, in fact, is cut into half. And the invisible vacuum cleaner pulls this value out of their pocket without their noticing it. And uh, the result is that the f uh, management of General Motors is quite happy to give all the demand, in, give in to all the de wage demands of the union. Because they know that they just adjust the invisible vacuum cleaner and they get it back the moment the workers leave the premises through this invisible uh, vacuum cleaner. So it's embezzlement, but since it's invisible, well, it can go on and everybody is happy. The workers are not unhappy because they get hefty and fat salary wage increases. So they are happy. They are unaware that it's taken out of their pocket. And uh, 
In any case, the next collective bargaining round is coming and then they will get more and more and more. Now, this parable, of course, is far too fanciful to approximate the truth. General Motors would find itself in the center of a devastating legal challenge and public relation fiasco if and when the theft eventually came to life, light. And it would sooner or later. I mean, you can fool a lot of people a lot of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all of the time, as according to Lincoln. So it is doubtful, to say the least, that the existence of an invention like the invisible vacuum cleaner could be kept in secret forever. Another problem with the scheme is the tacit assumption that the workers and the unions is a bunch of illiterate boors or idiots unfamiliar with the four rules of arithmetic. Yet, my parable is not quite as fanciful as it may appear at first sight. Actually, there is an invisible vacuum cleaner. It's called deliberate currency debasement. Just substitute the word government for General Motors and right there you have the machine which siphons off labor's gain fraudulently and surreptitiously. The modus operandi of the government's invisible vacuum cleaner is known to and condemned by many courageous critics. But nothing happens. The media ignores the criticism. The public's wrath, wrath is not raised. Some monetary experts are blackmailed and some economists are bribed with fat government contracts and grants. And to an add insult to injury, the funds used for bribing and blackmail have come out of the loot. So in other words, the workers and everybody else are looted and part of that money which was looted goes to pay off financial writers, journalists, university professors, economists, and so on, to hide the truth. So it's not become publicly known. The chorus of servile economists suppresses, suppresses the voice of the critics. To the former deliberate currency debasement, which they prefer to call inflation, as if it was a God-given curse, like inclement weather, or earthquake, or something you is not in your power to control. But it's not man-made. Uh, uh, 
I mean, according to the government, it's not man-made. It's a natural phenomenon. It's a minor irritant, which you can take care of by adjustments here and there. Adjustment in wages, adjustment in uh, social security checks, and so on. <coughs> the invisible government, I'm sorry, the invisible vacuum cleaner can only be operated by the government which is free to bend the legal system to its advantage. It can even violate the Constitution with impunity at pleasure. So, I just wanted to give this parable to you to consider, for whatever it is worth, and see in a different light of what is going on. Now here's another wonderful quotation, even shorter than the previous one, from Samuel Butler, who lived from 1600 to 1680. It says, doubtless the pleasure is as great of being cheated as to cheat. You see, it's very subtle, but if you think about it, you will see what's going on. How can this scheme survive for so long? Because it has been going on for the better part of the 20th century. How can it go on? Because the pleasure of being cheated is there. And it's just as great as to cheat. You see, there are all kinds of ways to sugarcoat the bitter truth. One is, as I just mentioned, to put inflation in a favorable light. It's a trade-off between unemployment and stable currency. Sure, we don't want unemployment. Everybody agrees. So we have to pay for reducing unemployment. Unemployment is a curse given by nature. It's not man-made, the government says, any more than inflation. It's not government-made. It's a natural state of affairs. It's there. We have to accept it. The sun rises on the east and sets in the west. You can't change, you can't switch it around. So the same way, inflation is there, like floods and other unpleasant things. And the government is coming to rescue because it will make its effect uh, more bearable. And there it is. People like this explanation. People say, thanks to government, we are not starving. Thanks, uh, thank the government for not having more unemployment. Thank the government for not having a greater 
inflation, forgetting that with stabilizing the uh, foreign exchange rates, would stabilize interest rates, and with a stable interest rate, uh, there would be a natural solution to these so-called uh, curses given to us by nature. Well, it's not nature, it's the government which destabilized the system by destabilizing it foreign exchange rates by destabilizing interest rates and the government now, which caused the problem in the first place, puts itself in the position of being the savior. So, people like to be cheated because people buy this explanation. People say, yes indeed, thanks government kindly for saving us from the disaster. So, this is the pleasure of being cheated. Former President Clinton declared from the White House that the dollar's strength, that was uh, 1998 or something thereabouts that Clinton declared that the strength of the dollar was due to the impeccable record of the US to pay its obligation meticulously. He claimed that there has never been a case of the United States defaulting on its bonds in the entire history of the Republic. This, of course, is an outright lie. Financial annals record at least two cases of American default. The first under a Democratic president and the second under a Republican president. After the Roosevelt administration devalued the dollar by about 56 percent, in 1933, in raising the gold price from $20 to something, to something a little over $20 was the official gold price before 1933, and it was raised to 35 The bondholders were paid in the diluted dollars. So they were effectively cheated, and this was uh, default. And the Supreme Court of the United States, only two years later, in 1935, reviewed the case because the bondholders were appealing, uh, and the case was of course decided in favor of the government at the first level, second level, ultimately got to the Supreme Court and 1935 was the year when the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its judgment. And you may not know that, and, but it's true and you can check it yourself. The United States Supreme court decided that it was un 
constitutional for the government of the United States to break its obligation unilaterally. It was unconstitutional. The Constitution of the United States never gave that power to the government, federal government, to do this. Because in every instance property was taken away from a citizen, it had to be done through due processes, which meant that you cannot do it to the whole society at the same time. You have to go to one citizen, take the property away, and the next one separately, and so on. But you cannot do it wholesale, that's to say that we devalue the dollar and pay the bondholders 60 cents on the dollar. You cannot, the government cannot do that. It was not allowed by the United States Constitution. So think what happened. I mean, the United States government lost the case. Supreme Court, there's no more appeal, you can't appeal to God on that issue. So, the government has to make restitution to the victims of this policy. Well, to make the long story short, what happened was that the government set a very tight deadline for claiming uh, restitution, which did not allow people, or even governments, foreign governments, to claim remedy. And when the deadline passed, the government said, too bad, you missed the deadline, you should have been more alert. <laughs> And the fact that the media didn't report that decision of the Supreme Court, and academia didn't explain what it meant and what right it gave to the injured parties, nobody asked any questions. The pleasure of being cheated is just the same as the pleasure to cheat. Now, 35 years after this default, a very disgraceful chapter in the history of the United States, this is Roosevelt. Then, in 1971, 35 years later, the Nixon administration defaulted on the gold obligation of the United States held by foreign governments. By that time, gold ownership was, uh, became illegal in the United States. Nobody could legally own gold. But foreign governments and even foreign citizens could uh, own it. And in effect, foreigners could take paper dollars to their own bank in a foreign country exchange it for gold, because then when it became 
property of the government, the government could go to the treasury and get the gold. So um, you could call it a loophole, but in fact that existed for uh, quite a long time and many American citizens took advantage of that and they set up accounts in foreign countries and if they wanted gold they could buy it legal, well, semi-legally through the, their foreign uh, bank accounts until this loophole was closed and uh, under Eisenhower this became also a crime uh, to have uh, gold holdings for an American outside of the country. It was still legal before Eisenhower but under his administration this loophole was closed. But in any case in 1971, uh, uh, August the 15th, Nixon issued a proclamation, they call it closing the gold window, it's just a little housekeeping change, close that window because there's draft. So. But in fact this was a default, like it or not, uh, of course no one called it that in the media. They didn't have the courage to call it, but default is a default by whatever name it passes. And uh, there were a lot of governments injured by that decision, foreign governments, uh, the largest ones being of course Japan and Germany. Uh, <laughs> Ironically, the countries which were uh, fighting on the wrong side in World War II. But anyhow, they, uh, the central banks of these countries lost uh, tremendously because uh, they, uh, you know what happened to the gold price. Now, they considered their American uh, treasury bonds in their portfolio equivalent of gold. Because that was the situation between 1971. And all of a sudden it lost its gold backing and gold value. And immediately the exchange rate showed that right there and then. You didn't have to wait, uh, you know, for the results. So the only way they could handle this, because of course that loss immediately showed up in the balance sheet of these central banks. Now they cannot afford to show a loss from one year to the next to the tune of 30% of the total foreign exchange reserve. They can just get. So what happened was that these governments, and, and not just Germany and Japan, but all the other governments outside of the United States had to print government bonds just like that and put it into the portfolio of these central banks to cover that loss. And they did it very quietly because they didn't want the world to know what's going on, you see. But those bonds were created out of the thin air just to cover that bookkeeping loss. They're, they're under existing rules of bookkeeping, uh, they could not just say, okay, well, 
the dollar is a dollar, whether convertible into gold or not. They couldn't do that. If the market devalued the dollar as a result of this default, then they just had to uh, do something about it, and that's what they did. They uh, plugged this huge hole in the balance sheet by ad hoc created paper doll, paper money. So the injured governments never sued. They could have, but they never did. Why not? Who knows? This is not in the public domain. Presumably, there was a little bit of arm twisting behind the scenes, diplomatic arm twisting. Of course, both Germany and Japan had American troops on their soil, so they were in effect occupied countries, and they couldn't even say, ouch, they were not allowed to say ouch. When you get hurt, you instinctively say ouch, sorry. No, you are not allowed. I guess Japanese, I understand. Because the America was the one who, uh, who guided that how much they looted during the Second World War and let Japan to, to say that they are not in a position to make remedies against what they did during this, the Second World War. Uh, well, I'm not yet at the question period, so I'm sorry, I want to go ahead and perhaps sure. you can bring it up uh, during the question period. So, that's all in addition to the loss of purchasing power, because there is of course, during all this time, a steady loss of value to the extent that by the end of the century, 20th century, the uh, dollar has lost more than 90% of its purchasing power. And of course, the savings of the people in banks or savings banks uh, was proportional. So when the dishonored dollar in 1971 went to a deep discount in terms of foreign currencies, I remember uh, the time when uh, for one dollar I could get four Deutschmarks. I was traveling in Europe uh, first after getting out of Hungary and I had a little bit of money saved and then I came back to Europe and, and traveled because I was never allowed to travel under the communist system but, and uh, I exchanged uh, my dollars and I got four Deutschmarks and four, about four Swiss francs and I, was, I felt like a king it was very good I, I, my dollar went much, much farther in Europe than it did in Canada or in the United States. And that was, of course, all gone after 1971. And I remember very well 
because my children were, uh, I already had three, and some of them went to school and I decided to send them to a good school and I found good schools in Britain. And these were boarding schools, so I sent my eldest son to that boarding school. In fact, as it happened, it was Old Windsor, near the Queen's uh, uh, Windsor Castle. And uh, I felt good about it because I could afford to send my son out of my income as a professor, my salary, not only to pay the tuition and all kinds of uniform and this and that there, you had to have a dowry to send your child to a boarding school in Britain at that time. And uh, on the top of that I had to pay their transportation from Canada. But with all this I could manage. And uh, my son was in second grade when this happened in 1971, and uh, that was the end of it. I could no longer send him back, you know, because the Canadian dollar went down together with the U.S. dollar. I mean, Canada couldn't afford to uh, defy the laws of gravitation caused by the American default, and uh, not only I suffered in my living standard, but my son also suffered because I had to pull him out of school and bring him back to Canada. And so, <coughs> this is the lie of Clinton, and a shameless outright lie to say that the United States has never ever defaulted on any debt. No, it did. At least twice, but, but it had the power to cover it up. That's all. Okay, the next is quantity theory of money which I want to say something about. How could the government, to which the Constitution granted only limited and carefully enumerated rights, grab unlimited power symbolized by the invisible vacuum cleaner? The devaluation of the dollar was, of course, part of that not so much invisible anymore, but it was still a vacuum cleaner which could pull money out of your pocket. A short answer to this question is that the government has, over a period of time involving several generations, successfully indoctrinated people with the most dangerous and vicious doctrine known as the quantity theory of money. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when it was originally introduced quite a few uh, centuries ago, it was never meant to be a theory. It was a, a metaphor, a, a mechanical metaphor. 
like the word equilibrium is comes from physics, right? It uh, was used in physics for a long time, and then economists thought it was a good word to use in economics. The same way, quantity theory of money is something which tells you that if you have more of something, then its value is less, and vice versa. But this is only a metaphor, and uh, uh, it's based on the linearity principle. If the world was linear, then perhaps the quantity theory of money would be a valid theory, and it would be applicable and a useful tool in economic analysis. But unfortunately, our world is highly non-linear. Uh, linearity is an exception. It's an extreme, which happens only under very, very special and restrictive conditions. And in most of the cases, it's non-linear. And in a non-linear situation, the quantity theory fails completely. And here it is, one of the uh, things or cornerstones of the quantity theory of money is the so-called equation of exchange, which is M times V is equal to P times Q. Now, you could embellish this and have subscripts and many terms, you break it up here, break it up there, and pretend that mathematics will impress everybody because people just don't have. But, you know, this is, for our purposes, just as good. So what do the letters mean? M is a stock of money stock of money existing in the world, including money in your pocket and money in the banks. V is very important, is velocity of money. It is the rate at which money turns over. Uh, P is the price level, and Q is the physical volume or quantity of transactions, of goods. Now, as you have to distinguish between money and real goods, which move. And if you multiply these two, that has to be the same as the quantity which you multiply. Here the price level and the quantity of goods in existence. Now, for the sake of argument, I will accept this. Now, there are many, many things wrong with this. And I'm not going to enter this. For the sake of argument, I'll accept this at face value and point out why the quantity theory is wrong even on its own terms. 
And the reason is that money is two-dimensional. The one dimension is n, sure, quantities. But it has another dimension. And that's velocity. Now, the central bank is given power to print as much as it wants and put it in circulation, all that. We accept that. But the central bank has zero power <coughs> over the quantity. To determine quantity is in the hands of the people and nobody, no government, regardless how powerful it is militarily or diplomatically or economically or politically, it doesn't matter, will not be able to take away the power of the people, inherent power which people have to determine the velocity of money. And as a consequence, when things are normal, whatever the word normal is, the quantity, I'm sorry, the velocity of money is low. Because people are satisfied that the money will keep its value. And therefore, they are not in any rush to get rid of it. In fact, they use their savings, or at least part of the savings, in the form of money. It could be paper money too. If it's well managed, why not? <coughs> or bonds or what have you. Anything denominated in terms of money. So the velocity is stable and low. But what happens when M is increased by the government or the central bank uh, or even just a breakdown in confidence, even if the government doesn't increase M, but somehow confidence breaks down. Then first the smart guys, the well-informed people, usually wealthy, who have access to information, or not so wealthy, but having political connections, have inside information. And they decide that money is no longer safe. What happens is that the velocity starts increasing a little bit. Nobody will notice, but it will be spent faster. Because some people get out of cash and into something which will keep its value better than money does. And then other people notice what's happening and they imitate the smart Alex who started getting out of money and they get out of money or part of their holdings of money and then more and more. And by the time the housewives notice what's going on, uh, then the velocity picks up and could increase by several magnitudes. And the, what can a poor housewife do? She can buy sh sugar or salt or tea or coffee or whatever, or start hoarding Maybe silver or gold. 
and all these things will increase the velocity, even if M is kept stable. But of course the government will see to it that M is not stable, M is also increased, because if money is losing value and M is not increased, then the economy will be tight. And it's the government's sacred duty to see to it that deflation won't happen, so they resort to inflation. So it, uh, this is what's happening. Money is two-dimensional, and for that reason the quantity theory fails even on its own terms. I don't accept this uh, e equation of exchange. There are lots of things wrong with it. But even if I do accept it, then I can show that the quantity of theory is invalid. At best, it's a metaphor, a mechanical metaphor. Now, I have to tie up the loose ends. There's a lot more I could say about this. <coughs> I think I will take a part of the discussion period to say something about the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. But staying with the subject of the quantity theory, and of course you have to remember that this is just one name, but it has been rehashed and rehashed again and the latest uh, rehashing was due to Milton Friedman, who uh, didn't like uh, the word quantity theory of money. In any case, he wanted to claim the credit to himself that he has something new, some improvement, some great advance in human thought, and he called it monetarism, and he uh, count himself as the king or high priest of monetarism. And he said that uh, that uh, what did he say? <laughs> Milton Friedman. He, he said that uh, money is uh, and, uh, that uh, change in price is always and everywhere monetary phen phenomenon. It has nothing to do with interest or uh, any other thing. Uh, you just have to watch the quantity and have to make sure that the quantity is increased, but at a controlled rate. And he uh, hit on the magic number and said it has to be 3% didn't offer any explanation why it's not two and a half and why not three and a half. He said three percent sounds good. And if the government increases the money supply, he had, first of all, the government has to increase, but must not increase by any less or any more, but three percent, because that's what the high priest of monetarism says. If a government does that, then there will be no price increases. 
and the world will be just as good as ever. So it's a ersatz gold standard. If as long as the government keeps ersatz, the German name for make believe or poor substitute. So you have he didn't say it was a poor substitute. He said it was a better substitute than the original gold, the genuine gold standard. And he went on to say more. And I'm referring to my caption, human action or horse action. Of course, you may know that human action is the title of a very famous book and a very valid book written by Ludwig von Mises, one of the greatest economists of the 20th century. And he has a rather thick volume, almost a thousand pages, and gave the title Human Action to it. Uh, he could have given the title Principle of Economics, but he thought Human Action was a good title because he, it's philosophy, it's philosophy. Namely, uh, there, there is the principle of causal in nature, but there's also principle of of teleology. Hmm? Teleology intent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, did everybody get that word? Uh, teleology. Not theology. No, no, no. Teleology. Now, this is philosophy, I have to say a little bit about that, because that's, I think, very, very important. Teleology is the science of uh, explaining phenomena, just like the principle of causality, the principle of teleology explains other phenomena. Now, causality is valid in the lifeless world of matter, energy, particles, masses, which have no life and no free will. Teleology comes in when individuals, human beings that is, have free will. They are not like bees, and the beekeeper can do what he wants with them, because human individuals act, act. So there's human action in the world, teleology. You have to explain what happens in terms of decisions of individuals. Now, macro, this is microeconomics. Macroeconomics pretends that aggregates, economic aggregates, such as GDP or the quantity of money in existence or any uh, number of them, act like human beings, that they have free will. But the money supply doesn't have free will. You can't explain the world 
with assuming that the money supply can act, or the GDP can act, or interact. It's always the individual. So, uh, you know, I cannot go too far in that direction, but it's lovely. I, I uh, consider Mises a very, very great philosopher as well as an academic scientist, because he, uh, this explains so much which otherwise economics cannot explain. Human action. Now, what is horse action? Well, here we go back to Friedman. Friedman said that even a clever horse can keep the money supply increase at a fixed rate, year from year to year. Because you think of the horse the way they uh, did the threshing mm -hmm. in the old days before the threshing machine was invented and became widespread and no more, you don't have Maybe in India they have threshing by yeah, horse? They do. They still do. Okay. Yeah. But in, certainly in, in Europe they don't, and in America they don't, and so on. But you imagine that there is a threshing ground. It means that the horse is tied to a pole in the middle of a shed. And then he goes round and round and round. And the wheat or rye or what have you is on the ground. And as the horse is treading on them, it threshes the seeds out. And then you take the horse away and you sweep up or remove the chaff and you have the threshed grain. That's what they did, what they did for hundreds and hundreds, or if not thousands of years. Now, a clever horse can make sure that he does the same amount of thrashing in a given time. So why not the central bank able to do this? All Friedman asked the government to make sure that the central bank is not running ahead of itself and not running behind schedule. Just keep the same plodding place, like the thrashing horse. And then everything will be fine and dandy. You don't have to worry about This is as simple as that. So, human action and horse action. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's not as simple as that. Because the amount of money created year by day could be fixed and the system can still collapse. And that is the problem. It's not that the central bank is a crazy horse which does all kinds of things which it's not supposed to be doing. The problem is that the world is non-linear and you have to have some, uh, I uh, call it, stabilizer. You have to have a flywheel and the flywheel has to be made of 
guess what? Paper. Paper. You got it. Gold. <laughs> the golden flywheel is the only thing you have to fix. And then things will fall into place. Things will be stabilized. Foreign exchange rates, interest rates, and wages and all other things will find their natural level, not to say equilibrium <laughs> level. And that's what should have been done. And they are not doing it. And they invent force action, they invent QE1, QE2, QE3, and exit strategies and so on. Everything but stabilization. This is out. This is taboo. This is normal. Don't stabilize. This is a world of change and you have to be adaptable to that change. And that's not the way. Well, some things have to be stabilized. All right, I have over, I've been working over time, so let's call it a 20 minutes, right? Well, sure. half an hour? No, no, 20, 25 minutes. And then I will have a few more things to say and we open the floor to discussion. We'll come back at five past four then. Oh, yeah.